All right. Well, thanks, Kim. Uh, it's good to be with you guys at the start of the new year. I guess technically last Sunday was the start of the new year, but I was out of town. Appreciate Cass preaching uh, last Sunday. She did a great job. You can catch that online if you didn't have a chance to see it. Um, but, you know, the new year, it is a good time to stop and reflect on all that we have to be thankful for. I'm really thankful that we get to do Night to Shine again. That's an option this year. It, is, it really is a fantastic night. It's the only time in the year that you will hear ACDC played in the sanctuary. Um, so I would encourage you to come and sign up and volunteer and be a part of it. I don't remember if Kim mentioned this. It takes about 400 volunteers to put that event on. So we really try to invite anyone from the community who has a heart to serve uh, to come and be a part of that with us. And we're also really grateful that this middle school retreat is happening. In fact, Justin, if you could, could you go back to the last of those three middle school slides? I, I want to point something out to you all that I did not notice. Did you notice that there's a kid hanging upside down from the rafters at the top of this? <laughs> I completely missed that the first time, and then it was like, oh, I have no idea who it was. I asked one of the parents, and they're like, I don't think that's one of mine. Um, but yeah, they're, they're there. They're having a, a great time. A quick update for you, actually, on that something else to be thankful for. Uh, on Friday afternoon, as a, a car with a couple of volunteers and a van with all the students were leaving, uh, that car was actually involved in a, in a car accident. A uh, car ran the stop sign at 53rd and Country Club and broadsided them. Everybody is okay. Uh, none of the students were in the vehicle that was hit, um, but we're just really grateful uh, that it wasn't worse and that everybody walked away just fine. And again, it's just one more example of God's protection, and it's just a reminder. You know, sometimes at the start of the year, there's so many things to be thankful for, and there's so many places where we can see God at work. If only we have the eyes to see it and are really focused on that. So that's one of the things I'm, I'm working on this year is trying to keep my eyes open more for the, the many reasons that I have to be grateful, and that is definitely one of them. So uh, this morning, as Randy mentioned, we are starting a new teaching series where we're looking at the New Testament book of Hebrews. So to get started, I'd love to invite you to turn to Hebrews chapter 1 with me. If it would help you for any reason, there are some red Bibles in the seats in front of you or around you. You can grab one of those and turn to the page number that's there on the screen. But as you're turning there, I feel like I should give you a word of warning. Um, there are certain books and passages in the Bible that you read them and like, it just immediately makes sense. It jumps off the page. You know exactly how it applies to your life, right? The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. Like we get what that means. Uh, the book of Hebrews is not that kind of thing. Uh, the book of Hebrews is full of these obscure references to Old Testament figures and practices. Really, pretty much every chapter of the book has all these things that make it really challenging to understand it. Um, but I believe that God has something really important that he wants to say to us through this text. So we're going to do the work each week to, to dig in and try to understand its message to us. I, I think what you will find as we go through this series is that if you've never studied the book of Hebrews before, it's a little bit like meeting a new friend. You know, when you meet somebody that's new, there, there's some work you have to put in on the front end, right? You've got to get to know them and their story and where they're coming from. But it's worth it to do that work because our, our lives are richer when we have these additional voices and friendships in our lives. So I think what we'll find as we study the book of Hebrews is as strange and as weird and foreign as it may seem at first, it actually speaks directly to the cultural moment that we're living in. It just as powerfully today as it did to its original audience. And actually, that idea that the book has an original audience that is not us is actually highlights what makes it so difficult to read and understand this book. Uh, just as a general rule, whenever we're studying the Bible, it is really important to keep this truth in mind. The Bible was written for us, but it was not written to us. Okay, the Bible was written for us, but it was not written to us. Now, let me tell you what I mean by that. 
Um, we believe that the Bible is 100% inspired by God and that everything we have in the Bible is exactly what he wanted us to have. And, and we can have confidence that it's there. And we believe that, that all of the inspired books of the Bible were written for all people at all times in all places so that they could know God and respond to his will for their life. But while every single word in the Bible is written for us, there is not a single word in the Bible that was originally written to us. If you doubt it, just look at the table of contents of your Bible. There are letters to a church in Rome and to a church in Ephesus and to a church in Philippi. There is no letter to a church in Oregon, right? There's no church to the letter to the church of Corvallis. The, the Bible was written to real people who lived in real places at real times. It just wasn't written first to us living in this place at this time, uh, which means if the Bible is going to speak to us today, which we believe that it does, we have to do some work to try to figure out, okay, what was this communicating to that original audience back then? How would they have heard and understood it? And then once we understand that message, then we can do the work of figuring out, okay, how does that translate to our lives and our world today? Like, in other words, we've got to do some, some digging to understand the historical context of the book. So before we actually jump into the text of Hebrews, let's, let's spend a little bit of time this morning doing that. And, and maybe a good place to start is just to ask, what kind of book is Hebrews? What kind of writing is it? Because, again, we look at our Bible, and we tend to think of it like any other book, because it's printed and bound like any other book. But the Bible's not actually a book. It's actually more like a library. There are 66 different books that are collected in the Bible, and they're written in very different literary styles, right? There's some collections of law codes, and there's prophecy, and there's history books, and there's biographies, and there's poetry. So what kind of writing is Hebrews? Well, if you look at the New Testament and, and where Hebrews is slotted in the order of the New Testament, it's right in the middle of this long stretch of letters. So at first glance, you might think, okay, the, the Hebrew book of Hebrews is probably a letter. But if it's a letter, it, it's a pretty strange letter. So just for comparison's sake, if you open up your Bible to Hebrews, what I want you to do is flip back one page before that. So one page before that is a very short book of the Bible. It's, it's called Philemon, and it is a first century letter that was written by the early Christian leader Paul to a young guy named Philemon. And look at how it starts. It says, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our dear friend and fellow worker. See, that's how letters started in the first century. The author would name themselves, they would name the audience, and there would be this formal greeting. Okay, that's how letters work. Well, go back to the beginning of the book of Hebrews and see how it starts. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways, but in these days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom he also made the universe. That's a very different way to start, right? There's no author name. There's no audience name. Instead, it just, it just jumps into the meat of the letter. And really, for the next 13 chapters, what you get sounds a lot more like a sermon that you would have heard in a first century church than what you would have in a letter. It's only near the very end of the book of Hebrews that you get some things that sound like a letter. So, for example, if you look at the very last couple of verses of Hebrews, you read this. It says, Greet all your leaders and all the Lord's people. Those from Italy send you their greetings. Grace be with you all. That's how letters in the first century often ended. You get the picture that whoever's writing Hebrews is writing them, and he's got a group of friends who know the people who are going to receive the book of Hebrews. And they're like, oh, hey, can you send our greetings along with them as well? So most scholars, when they're trying to figure out, okay, what are we, what are we dealing with with the book of Hebrews? They say, okay, it was probably a first century sermon that was written down, but then it has some pieces added to it that make it like a letter. It's a sermon that then could be sent off and delivered to a specific group of people somewhere to speak to their situation. 
So that's the, the kind of writing is. It's somewhere between a sermon and a letter. Um, but who wrote it? And this is one of the really interesting things. We honestly do not know who wrote the book of Hebrews. Uh, there have been a lot of different debate over the years. Lots of different theories floated out there. Um, but the Hebrews, the, the author is never named. It's not like the book of Philemon where he says, I, Paul, am writing this letter. Uh, the author never names themselves. But even though they don't name themselves, if you read the letter carefully, you, you can figure out some things about the author just by looking at what they wrote. So, for example, one of the things that you notice about the author is that the author apparently had a very good first century education. So just like today, like uh, the courtyard students were all here at the first service. So if you're at OSU and you take a class in like freshman composition or something like that, you'll have a textbook that says, you know, this is a good way to make an argument. You have a thesis statement and you have your points. Well, there was a first century version of that as well. There were Greek manuals about how to write a letter and how to structure an argument. And the book of Hebrews really follows the, the best practices for writing in the first century. So the, the author probably had some exposure to that teaching. And there's also a clue in the actual language used itself. The, the New Testament was written in Greek. But there's different flavors of Greek at that time. And the book of Hebrews is written in a very, almost like literary, high, artsy-fartsy kind of style of Greek. It's very different than what you see in Paul's letters. So those things together, you kind of get the picture, okay, that the author of Hebrews had a pretty good education. Um, but beyond that, if, if you read through the letter of Hebrews, one of the other things that is incredibly clear is that the author of the book of Hebrews had a deep understanding of the Hebrew Bible, what we call the Old Testament. Their mind was just saturated in the Old Testament. It shows up everywhere. So 35 different times in this, in this letter or sermon, they quote from the Old Testament. Another 30 times, they don't quote it exactly, but they're, they're kind of alluding to it and referring to it. 19 different times, they, they present a little summary of a story or something that happened as a snapshot so they can make a point about that. And 13 different times, they introduce either the name of a person from the Old Testament or a, a term from the Old Testament, and they never bother to explain the context of who they were or what they meant. And actually, the very fact that they don't ever explain that gives us a hint about what the audience was like. Because again, you know, we, we don't know who the, the, audio, the author was, but we know a little bit about him. But we have to do a similar kind of process with the audience, because the audience isn't named either. But again, when you read the text, you can make some observations about who the audience likely was. And one of the things that seems pretty clear is that the author, at least, believes that the audience knows the Old Testament every bit as well as they do. Because again, they're always introducing these Old Testament stories in terms never with any explanation, never with any context, just with the understanding that this is part of your mental world as well, and you're, you're going to get what I'm saying. If I allude to this story, oh, you're going to get the reference that I'm making there. But when you read through the text of Hebrews, you realize that this is also very clearly a Christian document. I mean, it is a sermon about Jesus and his life and his death and his resurrection and the difference that makes in our life. So, so when you put those things together, the, the logical assumption is that the, the Hebrews was written to Jewish Christians, right? Christians who are followers of Jesus, but who grew up Jewish, who had a Jewish religious and cultural background. And that was a very, very common thing in the first century. Many of the original followers of Jesus had the same Jewish religious and cultural background that Jesus had. So it, clearly the, the author is writing with this kind of audience in mind. But it still begs the question, why, why is he writing? I mean, what's the, what's the whole point of doing this? And again, if you read the text carefully and you see the kind of things that the author mentions, you can put together a picture of what's going on. And we'll, we'll dig into that in depth each week in this series. But for now, let me just give you sort of the 30,000-foot view of what seems to be going on in this document. So the author of Hebrews is writing to a group of people who are discouraged. 
uh, some of them are beginning to face real persecution because of their faith in Jesus. Others of them are likely thinking about abandoning their Christian faith and returning back to their Jewish roots. Like, you can imagine that they're taking all sorts of heat and pressure from other people, including their friends and their family, people who grew up Jewish with them but didn't put their trust in Jesus. They're putting some real pressure on them to come back and to turn back to the original faith they had. And as a result of all this external pressure, some of them are starting to pull away from the larger Christian community, the church in the city where they live. They're not showing up for services anymore. They're starting to wonder, I mean, is it even worth it to follow Jesus? And as time goes by, they've started to experience some difficult things in their life. And some of them are starting to doubt, you know, maybe this Jesus thing isn't all it's cracked up to be. Maybe it's not going to deliver on some of the promises that I thought it would. So the author knows that this is what they're experiencing, so he writes this letter to encourage them to stick with it. To, to persevere in their faith, to not abandon their commitment to Jesus. In fact, near the end, the author mentions this. He's writing so that they would strengthen their feeble arms and their weak knees, right? Stick with it. Keep, keep your eyes on Jesus in the midst of anything that might pull your attention away from him. Okay, so let's pause for just a second here. Um, I, I don't know, have you guys ever been frustrated at how difficult it is to read the Bible? I mean, if you think about it, I've been talking for like 10 minutes just about background. We haven't even gotten to the text of Hebrews yet. And for me, it's always been a little bit of a challenge growing up that the Bible is not an easy book to read. Uh, Because I grew up in a church a lot like suburban that places a high value on Scripture. I was encouraged from the time I was little to read the Bible every day and to have a quiet time. And those are wonderful things for everybody to do. But the the danger sometimes when you're in a church that values Scripture like that is I kind of grew up thinking like, well, this should be an easy book to read. I mean, if I'm going to read this every day, it should have like a, it should speak directly to my life every day. There shouldn't be a lot of effort involved. It, it's kind of like when a new, like when a New York Times bestseller comes out. You pick it up and read it. You don't have to do a lot of background work to understand it because it was written to us in our day, in our age. Um, but the Bible isn't like that. Like it was written a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, right? And there's some distance between us and them. And it's all about the expectations that you have. Because when I came to the Bible with the expectation that it should be a simple thing to open up and read it, I often walked away frustrated. Um, But it has helped me over the years to actually think about this in terms of bridges and building bridges. Uh, So stop and think. So we have some friends here in town that live down this gravel driveway. And near the end of their driveway, there's a little creek. It's not very big, but they have this little sort of plank bridge that goes across. It's like, I don't know, maybe 15 feet long, something like that. And, you know, if the bridge washed out, it'd be hard to get to their house. But it's the kind of thing that a good group of contractors, they could rebuild that bridge in a couple of days pretty easily. That is very, very different than the bridge that crosses the bay in Newport, right? Like, that bridge isn't 15 feet long. It's 3,200 feet long. And it took them two years to build it. And it would cost about $25 million in today's dollars to do that. So simply put, the bigger the gap there is between where you are and where you want to be, the bigger the bridge has to be. The the greater the distance, the greater the resources that are needed to build that bridge. Which is why reading the Bible is oftentimes not going to be as easy as picking up the latest bestseller and reading that. Right, because there's just a lot more distance between our world and the world of the Bible. And it is difficult to find a book in the Bible itself uh, where you feel that distance more than you do with the book of Hebrews because there's just so many things that are different from the original audience. This is how one scholar who was talking about all of the, the challenges to reading the book of Hebrews, all the differences between us and them, frames it up. He says that the message of Hebrews was written almost 2,000 years ago 
in the Greek language by an educated person of Jewish descent in the form of a synagogue sermon written for a church that was located in the broader Greco-Roman culture. None of that is us, right? So this book was written to people with a very different life from us in some ways, which is why in this series we we have to do some work each week to to dig into the historical piece and see what it was saying. Um, But I also don't want you to be discouraged when it comes to reading the Bible on your own or even into wading into Hebrews together. Because, yeah, while there is some distance between us and the audience, they're not completely different than we are. I mean, really think about it. Think about their situation. They were discouraged and they were weary. Anybody relate to that? They struggle with doubts and spiritual laziness and unbelief, and we we struggle with that at times, right? Some of them were stalled out in their faith. Right? You, you probably, maybe you had that experience where you met Jesus for the first time and you were on fire and you were learning and growing and everything was new and it was great. And then at some point, you hit a wall and that momentum stopped and you felt like you were spinning your wheels and you were just stalled out. That's what's happening with some of them. Some of them were undergoing hardship. Right? Their, their family and friends had, had cut them off. They'd rejected them and shamed them. Some of them, as a result, they're, they're thinking about just walking away from it all and abandoning their faith. Some of them were, were still following Jesus, but they weren't really living out what he was saying to do. You know, they, they were living lives and making moral choices that were pretty disconnected from what Jesus was doing. They, they were inconsistent in how they applied their faith. Does any of that sound like your life today, right? Yeah. And then you said we all have those times when our passion is gone, where we undergo hard times because of our faith where we're compromising, where we see the inconsistencies in our life. And, and that's why it is so worth it to do the work that's needed to read the book of Hebrews. Because God still has something powerful to say to us today through this text. Because here's the simple truth. This is what you're going to find no matter what book of the Bible you read. While the historical context may have changed, the context of the human heart hasn't changed a bit in the last 2,000 years. Right? The context of what is going on in our hearts has not changed. And the book of Hebrews addresses this wide range of topics where you need to have uh, encouragement and you need endurance and you need to hang with it. And, and it's designed to give people the tools that they need to keep moving forward in their faith, even in those tough spots. That was the message that they needed to hear back then. And I believe that, man, that is the message that God has for us today as well. And I trust, I believe that as we go through this book together, the Holy Spirit can speak that message to us in a way that is every bit as powerful as what he did to the original audience back then. So here's what I want to do. Uh, Just for the next few minutes, we're going to take a look at how the book of Hebrews begins. We're just going to look at the first four verses of Hebrews. And then we're going to think, okay, what what did these verses, what did they say to them back then and what do they say to us today? So here's how the book starts. It says, In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, and through whom also he made the universe. The son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. Okay, I, I don't know what modern English translation you were using, but chances are good that it divides those first four verses up into a bunch of different, very complex, long, convoluted sentences. Uh, but here's the thing that you need to know. In the original Greek, all of this is one sentence. Okay, you talk about your run-ons, right? It is one sentence. But grammatically, this sentence is all built around one central idea. And the idea 
is that God has spoken. Grammatically, that's what's at the center of that sentence in Greek. And if you think about it, that's what the author's driving at. He talks about how God has spoken in various ways in the past, but now God has spoken in, in a full and a more complete way through his son. And then he talks about what he's communicated, you know, through his son's life and his death and his resurrection. And then he brings up this weird thing about angels, and we'll get to that in a minute. But, but the, the main idea of this opening chunk of Hebrews is really simple. Right? God is the great communicator. God has always been in the com- business of speaking to his people, of revealing who he was to people, of communicating to his people. And Jesus is the culmination of how he is now choosing to express himself to people, to reveal to people what he is like. I mean, really, this is a long, uh, you know, long Greek sentence. It is basically the author's way of saying that Jesus is a chip off the old block, right? If you have seen Jesus, you have seen God, and you know something about what God is like. It's the same argument that John makes in his uh, biography of Jesus, where Jesus says, if you've seen me, you have seen the Father. And he, he does it in a really interesting way. That, uh, like, so in verse 3, there's that little phrase where it talks about how Jesus is the exact representation of God. So the Greek word behind that is the Greek word character. It's, it's where we get our English word character. But don't, don't think about that word the way we think about the English word character. For us, we think about characters like, you know, the person's inner core, their personality, who they are. This is a, a technical name in Greek for a tool. So a character was something that was used when they were minting coins. Have like, you ever seen, like, ancient coins that had, like, the emperor's face on it or something? Well, the character was the part that had the emperor's face engraved in it so that every time they stamped it into the metal, you got an exact representation of the emperor there on the coin. The idea here is that Jesus is the most true and trustworthy picture that we are ever going to get of who God is. And this, this idea, right, that God spoke in the past and now it's sort of been finalized in Jesus, it, it reminds me of an art exhibit that I saw once. So there was this gallery, and the way they had it set up, it was so fascinating— they had the, the finished painting on the wall, but then next to the finished painting, they had different sketches, like preliminary sketches that the artist had done to, to get things ready for it, and the sketches weren't fleshed out. They were incomplete. But even in the sketches, you, you kind of see how they're pointing towards the final product. And I think that's the main argument that the author is trying to make at the beginning of this chapter. For a long time, God has been sending advanced sketches of himself to the world through his words to the prophets and other people. But now he has given us the finished product, right? He's given us the exact portrait of who he is, right? God has something powerful to reveal about himself and to say to his people. And he has said that in a full and a trustworthy and inspiring way in Jesus. Now, that doesn't mean that everything that God said before doesn't matter, right? In fact, this author clearly values the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament. That's why he's always referring back to it. That's part of God's communication as well. But the way that the author views the Old Testament is kind of like a play that doesn't have the final act included. It says all this stuff is important, but it's important because it is leading to the culmination of the story as you find it in Jesus. He believes that the Bible is a unified story that leads to Jesus, which is why every time the author goes back and refers to an Old Testament passage, he's trying to show that as good as that is, you can't stop there. You, You have to keep going because God's communication has built on and progressed beyond that, and it ultimately leads to Jesus. In, in these opening lines, I think the author is, is really introducing an idea that he's going to talk about all through the rest of the book. He's trying to get, begin to get us to think about the, the, the beauty and the power and the uniqueness and the majesty of Jesus, right? He's pointing out how he is so much better than anything else that we could ever imagine. Nothing that we see can compare to Jesus because he's the, the heir of all things. Right? It doesn't make any sense to trust anything else in the world to sustain us when we are weary, 
because Jesus himself is the one who is sustaining everything in the universe by his powerful word. Uh, the point is the author's trying to make is whatever you may think of that's good, Jesus is better than that, right? That's why he brings up this whole idea of angels at the end. It's not like he's saying angels are trash, man. You shouldn't pay attention to them. Angels were, were spiritual beings that were thought of in very high regard in the first century. But the argument he makes through the rest of chapter one is basically saying, if you guys were impressed with angels, <laughs> wait until you see Jesus. They're just the JV team, okay? Because nothing is better than Jesus. Okay, so that's, that's the, the message. Um, but try to think for a second. Okay, if you put yourself back in the shoes of that original audience, how would the message of these opening verses, how would it have landed with them? What, what did it say to them? And if it helps, like, think about the pressure that these Jewish Christians were facing. Like, they, they had grown up in a Jewish cultural world. And while many of them had put their trust and faith in Jesus, most of their family and their friends and their relatives and their neighbors and their coworkers, they had not done that. So they look at these Jewish Christians and the religious choices they're making, and at best, they see them as misguided and misled. But at worst, they see their brothers and their sisters who put their faith in Christ as someone who's being actively disloyal to everything that they knew to be true about God. And because they cared about the people, they thought they were going down the wrong road, they were putting all sorts of pressure on these young Jewish Christians to go back to where they were before, to abandon the newfound Christian movement with its claims. And some of those Christians, Jews, they were beginning to wonder, okay, do I, should I go back? Is Jesus really God's final answer, right? Is Jesus really enough? Is following him really worth it? And all throughout the book of Hebrews, the author is going to answer those questions with a resounding yes, Right, from the very first verse of this book, he focuses on Jesus, on what is distinctive and true and beautiful about him. He constantly reminds his readers that you should not go back to an earlier phase of God's story. Now that Jesus is here, we all have to keep moving forward. We all have to keep pressing on and allowing his spirit to help us continue to grow in him. Everything about this sermon is designed to encourage them to keep their eyes on Jesus so that Jesus can empower and continue to draw them on towards maturity in him, right? God has spoken through Jesus, and the message is clear, right? Nothing is better than him. And that right there, right, that speaks to us today, right? Uh, and that is the living heartbeat of the message of Hebrews for us today as well. You know, in some ways, the, the specifics of our situation are pretty different uh, than the original audience. I don't think that many of us are feeling a strong pressure to go back to our Jewish religious roots, because most of us don't have Jewish religious roots. But we all go through seasons where we stall out. We all go through seasons where we are horribly inconsistent and where we make compromises. We all get weary and get discouraged. We all, we all get dissatisfied and wonder, you know, man, maybe there's something better out there if I just expanded my spiritual horizons a little bit. I mean, all of us, when we're trying to make this life work, we are all tempted to reach out to other things that we think might work better. Uh, maybe that's success at work or sex, or money, or education, or relationships, or family, or anything else. But the message of Hebrews is the same to us today as it was 2,000 years ago, which is that Jesus is the crescendo of God's work on earth, and nothing will ever be able to do for us what Jesus can. Right? There is no identity anywhere like the identity that you find in Jesus as his spirit transforms you. Right? It gives you better answers and better tools for what you are looking for than anything else you can ever find in life. And because that is true, that is why Jesus is the anchor that we can hold on to that can keep us from drifting away. 
So for all of us, right, instead of settling for whatever else we might think fill us up, what might help us find our place in the world, we're called to keep our eyes on Jesus, to pay attention to him, to, to the role that he played, to the role that he is inviting us to play in this world and the life he's calling us to live. So that's really what we're going to be doing over the next few weeks in this series. And honestly, it's what we're always trying to do as a church. Like we talk about this a lot. Like at Suburban, we really do try to help every single person that we meet encounter the risen Christ and become fully alive in him, fully alive in Jesus. So to do that, we want to continually be focusing on him, learning from him, allowing his life to inform our life, allowing his spirit to fill us and transform us, allowing him to do whatever work of hope and correction and healing needs to take place in our lives. And so that's what we're going to do in this series. You know, I was trying to think of some grand way to introduce it. And really, it's just we're going to look at Jesus together for the next couple of months through the lens of what this first century Christian leader knew to be true about him. Look at how the book starts again, right? It says, in the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many ways and in, at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. Like, God is speaking. He has spoken to us by his son. He continues to speak to us by his son through the power of his Holy Spirit. He continues to speak to us because of what Jesus has done. He continues to speak to us when we reflect on the, the difference that his life and his death and his resurrection can make in our life. He continues to speak to us because he is the God who is above it all, who is unshakable, who holds the universe together in his power. The question is not, is God still speaking? The question is, are we actually listening? And then what do we do when we hear? Because the living God is here. He says, when two or three are gathered in my name, I am with you. The spirit of God that holds this universe together is here and wants to meet with each one of us today and speak to each one of us. So in just a moment, I'm going to pray and, and we're going to finish out our time together by singing a song that, that I think really does help us reflect on what is unique and beautiful about Jesus. Uh, but before we do that, I just want to invite you to pray with me uh, that even today and through the course of this series that that we would just listen well to whatever God wants to say to us. Father, we are so grateful uh, that we have the Bible that we have. I admit it's frustrating to read it at times because I wish it were easier and it isn't always, but we trust your wisdom and we are grateful that there are ways to build bridges uh, to understand what you were saying to your people back then so we know what you're saying to us today and what you're calling us to do. God, there's a lot going on in our lives. Um, some of us really are feeling weary. Some of us don't quite know what's next in terms of life transition with school or work or relationships or what that might be as we head into the next year. All of us, God, are looking for something to base our identity on as we navigate this world, our sense of worth and our sense of value. God, would you open up our eyes to see you, to see the real beauty and unique truth of Jesus. And would you open up our ears to just hear from you whatever it is that you want to say to us. I, God, I'm not smart enough to know what you want to say to all of these different people, um, but you are. And so I just invite you to come in these closing moments and to do what only you can do. Right Through the power of your Holy Spirit, would you speak to each one of us? And would you help us open up our ears to listen? And God, when we, when we hear you, would you give us the courage to do what you are calling us to do. 
And God, thank you that we can have the confidence that that your spirit is with us and empowers us because you are still alive. You are ruling on the throne because of what you have done through your life and death and resurrection. You are indeed above it all. You are unshakable in your power and in your love for us. And there is nothing, nothing that can separate us from that. God, we want to hear you this year and we want to follow you each day. Would you give us the strength and the power in your spirit to do that? Amen.